Hey everybody, Justin White here, and you're about to listen to episode 18 of Power Forward. Our guest is Alan Stein, keynote speaker and former basketball performance coach. Alan spent almost 20 years working in basketball, and during that time, he learned a lot about the mindsets and routines of elite players. He'll tell us why the strategies of those athletes can be used by anybody. Alan also reveals his three keys for success and tells us why you have to do all three of them for it to work. All that and more with Alan Stein right now on Power Forward. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to inform, entertain, and educate. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast series do not constitute legal or other professional advice, opinions, or endorsements of any kind. This is Power Forward. All right, welcome back to Power Forward. Justin White alongside Mateen Cleves. Mateen, what is good, my friend? Oh, just living a dream. And, and I'm not trying to wake up, Justin. Oh, you, you're not trying to wake up. I think that's a little bit different from, from your usual line, right? A L- little different. All right, well, well I appreciate the curveball. <laughs> and uh, you're welcome for noticing. Uh, I want to I talk to you a little bit about... Um, the fundamentals, okay. you know, the, the work that is done behind the scenes. I mean, for, from your your experience as a basketball player and now in uh, in the business world, you know, you've you've been around a lot of great players. You've been around a lot of great leaders um, to you. What stands out when you think about the people that, that really um, take their time? to do the fundamentals, to work on those things that, that maybe don't seem like a big deal, but at the end of the day, they really matter a lot. Well, yeah, I can I can speak from personal experience with myself. You know, as a player, I would spend hours and hours and hours in the gym trying to get better. And people would see you on TV at times and think, oh, you know, he's he made that shot. He was lucky. No, I practiced that shot a, a lot of times. And even I played with some of the great players, LeBron James, Chris Webber. I mean, all these great players, Ray Allen. The preparation, Ray Allen is the guy that really sticks out to me that prepared himself. I mean, he put in tons of hours to be able to shoot the basketball the way he did. So it's basic fundamental things. You see the finished product, but trust me, there's a lot that go into it to be successful. Yeah, it's the stuff that people don't see, right? right. It's all those hours in the gym or hours uh, in the office when nobody else is there or or working at night, whatever the case may be. So, you know, it's no coincidence. Uh, people who achieve greatness for the most part, they have to work really hard and put in a lot of hours to get to that point. Right? Yes, indeed. You got to work hard. You want to be successful? You got to put in the work. I tell people all the time, man, if you want to be better, you want to be great, I work the next person. That's what you got to do. All right. Well, uh, our, our guest today um, ha- has some thoughts on, on that topic and more. Um, he's got a, a really uh, interesting background and you know, I think it's going to fit really nicely with with you and, and yeah, with I'm us. I'm excited because, about this guy. Yep, he's got a basketball background. He is Alan Stein Jr. He is a corporate performance coach and a former basketball performance coach. He he was in that role for 15 years. He now speaks to businesses and he goes around and talks to colleges and, and the message is really how they can develop championship level performance. 
Alan, great to have you with us. Welcome to Power Forward. Oh, I'm so excited to be with you both. We're going to have a fun conversation. Oh, yeah. We are We are excited to have you. And, um, you, you know, this is right up, right up Mateen's alley, right in his wheelhouse, you know, <laughs> talking to a guy who, who's got experience working with elite basketball players. Um, you've you've worked with the likes of, of Kevin Durant. Uh, you, you've been around um, names like Kobe Bryant and, and many others. Just just to, to start off, Alan, to tip things off, if you will, uh, give our listeners a little bit of background about you and uh, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, probably very similar to Mateen, uh, basketball was my first identifiable passion. And I remember falling in love with the game at probably four or five years old. And here four decades later in my mid-40s, it's still a major pillar in my life. So for one, I'm very grateful that I've, I've been able to stay aligned with my passion for my entire life. And I was able to play at a small school, uh, Elon College, now Elon University down in North Carolina. And I knew that when my college playing days were over, that my playing days were over, but I still wanted to stay very connected to the game because of my love for it. And I started to develop an equal affinity for performance training, uh, for strength and conditioning, and and how can I run faster and jump higher and get in better shape. Uh, And that was really how I evolved into this basketball performance role, uh, where I was able to combine my previous love of the sport of basketball with my new love of performance training and strength and conditioning, and was very fortunate to do that for uh, almost 20 years and was able to work with some really good players and really good coaches and have some neat opportunities to learn from the best of the best. And that's what brought me to this current iteration of I take all of the the mindsets and rituals and routines and habits and perspectives and philosophies that I learned from these great players and coaches, and I show folks how to translate those into their own lives and into business. And let me ask you this, Alan, because you you played, and and I'm sure every person that picks up a basketball, the ultimate goal is to play in the NBA. But... It, it, it doesn't work like that for everybody. So what was your mindset when you kind of came to that role, came to the end of the role where it seemed like your playing days was over? What what was that? How was that? How did you deal with that? What was interesting, like most really young children, and this is neat because I have twin sons that are nine years old. And of, of course, you know, my, my one son right now, and I say this with, with all of the love and compassion I have in my heart, I mean, he believes he's going to play in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And I would never say anything to discourage him. Um, I do know the reality, uh, you know, that such a small percentage make it to that level that the odds are stacked against him. But I certainly want to support him in every way that I can. And and I remember when I was that age, I thought I was going to be an NBA player as well. Mm -hmm. And as I got older and, and I saw that the world was much bigger than my small town or even just the state of Maryland, you know, it became obvious to me that when college was done, my playing days were over. And, and I was actually at peace with that uh, because I fell in love with the coaching side and the performance side. And I knew that I could still be around the game and, and still enjoy the game and help other people. So it actually wasn't this this big disappointment. I saw the writing on the wall probably in middle school that I was not going to be a pro and I was okay with that. I wanted to play basketball for as long as I could and reap as many great benefits as I could from it and then move to the next chapter. So it was it was actually an okay transition for me. Okay. Had I been a better player, you know, if I would have been uh, a McDonald's All-American or something, uh, then that probably would have been a much harder pill to swallow. Alan, where did this um, this this love of, of teaching come from? Because it seems like with, with any coach or any teacher, um, you know, performance coach, whatever your, your role is, you have to really love working with people and helping them learn, um, you know, a a certain skill set. Where did that come from for you? 
That definitely came from my parents. Uh, both of my parents were elementary educators for 30 years, and I got to see firsthand how much they enjoyed the vocation of teaching and pouring into young people. And, you know, it's, it's common knowledge that teachers don't make a ton of money. So I, I knew that my parents weren't doing their jobs for money. They were doing it because it was something they believed in, uh, something they felt like they were making a difference with young people, and something that gave them high personal satisfaction. So uh, I grew up in a household knowing that whatever it was I was going to do, that I, I wanted it to be something that I enjoyed and that, that I felt was was not only adding value to my life, but adding values to others and serving others. And uh, realized very quickly that I was much more passionate about coaching basketball than I was about teaching a subject. So uh, I initially was thinking I would be a, an elementary school teacher and a high school basketball coach and quickly decided that wasn't the best path, that, that just diving into the coaching was much more suited for me and something that I enjoyed a lot more. But, but I think teaching and coaching are very synonymous. You know, I have so much admiration and respect for Coach Izzo. And if, uh, you know, I consider him a teacher every bit as much as I consider him a coach. And, and I think that's why he's on the Mount Rushmore of, of college coaches, because he teaches not just basketball skills, but life skills and, and things with high utility. So to me, teacher and coach is very synonymous. And Adam, where are one of the um, intangibles that you, you, you must have to be a great teacher, a great leader, a great coach? The first is you just genuinely have to care. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's two things you have to care about. You have to care about your organization or your team, whether it's your university or it's your company. You have to care about the mission and vision. Like, where is this thing trying to go? And is that vision important to me? But then you also have to care about the people. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, one thing that, and, and because caring is a choice. You know, we choose whether or not to care. It, that's an act of will. Uh, and, and I say that because you can technically care about someone that you don't even really like. Like, I'm sure at some point, Mateen, you had a teammate that wasn't your favorite person in the world, but you still respected and cared about them because they were on your team. Yes. And they were getting up at five in the morning just like you were, and they were running sprints just like you were. Now, they might not have been your BFF once practice was over, but you still cared about them. And to me, that's what I try and teach organizations is you don't have to be best friends with everyone here, but you have to respect them and you have to care about them. And you have to care about them and the mission enough that you're doing, you'll do anything in your power to serve them and to help them, even if they're not your favorite person in the world. That's a great point. And I, I won't name any names, but yes, oh, come I on. did have some teammates like that. But you, when you share one common goal, and it's to, to be the best at what you're doing, Alan, I think that's a great point that you brought up. It's all about uh, you put all that aside when you, when, when you care about people. So uh, I, th I think that's a great point that you brought up. Yeah, Carrie, and what's very neat, interesting is liking somebody actually has a lot to do with, with our unconscious mind. It has a lot to do with the energy and the vibrations they put out. I mean, you know, I'm sure you guys have met someone in your travels or, or in the things that you do. And within 30 seconds, just something about that person rubs you the wrong way or, or you're like, all right, I'm, I'm ready to move on to another conversation. So many times the people that we like or are attracted to, 
that's beyond our conscious mind. But caring is always a conscious choice. And uh, one of the big dysfunctions of a team is when someone chooses not to care, not to care about the mission or the vision, not to care about the person next to them. And I just want them to always know that that is a choice you make. And the best teams, whether it's a Michigan State championship basketball team or it's what you guys are doing now uh, in the mortgage world, you have to choose to care. And as soon as you don't care about the people around you or you don't care about the mission, then it's time to leave. You know, I, I thought it was interesting when, when we first talked to you, Alan, you, you, um, you made it pretty clear that your goal when you go around and, and speak, you know, whether it's to a, a team or, or a business or at an event, um, that your goal is to change people's behavior and their habits. It's, it's about a lot more than just motivating people. Why is that such a big emphasis for you? Well, motivation is fleeting. You know, there's, there's times where all of us, just as human beings, there's times of the day when we're more motivated than other times. There's times of the week or month or times of the year. And most people are highly motivated in early January of any new year. And that motivation quickly fades. You know, statistically, by the third week of January, the vast majority of people have already given up on their New Year's resolutions. That's three weeks in to a 52-week year, they've already given up. So clearly, motivation uh, is fleeting. What's more permanent and lasting is behavior, our habits. It's the things that we do unconsciously and that we do consistently. So my goal is to remove as much friction as possible and give people strategies and tools on how they can improve their habits because that's what will we'll end up standing the test of time. And that's where they'll actually see a change in, in performance. You know, if, if their goal is whatever it may be, whether it's to lose weight and get in shape or it's to, you know, to sell more mortgages, uh, it's the habits and behavior that they do consistently that will determine either one of those outcomes. It's funny that you talked about habit because I have a 10-year-old son that I'm teaching basketball right now and he likes to emulate all of these players that he sees on TV. And I was, oh, yeah. and, and he, well, he don't understand that 10. I'm telling him, do not practice bad habits. Don't practice shooting the ball uh, this opposite way or, you know, you looked at somebody on TV that's seven foot and they shoot a certain way. That's not your shot. I've been around great players. The best shooter I've probably been around was Ray Allen. He shot the ball the same way every time. So there was no surprise that this guy had success. So practicing good habits, whether it's in sports, business, whatever it is, you want to practice good habits, Alan. Oh, you're, you're so right on that, with, with Mateen. I mean, first of all, and I don't know the exact numbers, but I've heard something to the effect of it takes 100 good reps to undo one bad rep. So mm. if, if you picture a group of guys working out and you're going you're gonna to get up 10 shots during this one drill and you have very poor footwork for three or four of those shots, it's going to take three or 400 shots done the right way to make sure that you have the muscle memory to do it correctly. And that's why a Ray Allen uh, or a Steph Curry are so meticulous with their habits from, from footwork to shooting form because they know that, uh, that a bad rep takes away more than a good rep adds. And uh, you can actually, uh, my friend Drew Hanlon, who's a, a uh, NBA skills strategic coach, um, he's the one that, that they kind of told me that phrase and uh, about making sure you're doing things the right way all of the time because you can actually, what he says, you can go to the gym and get good at being a bad shooter. Yeah. That's, mm. that's something you got to think about. If you're going in there and doing it wrong, um, 
yeah, you're actually working backwards. And, and he told me a story because he, uh, uh, I mean, he's worked with some of the best shooters in the NBA. And he said a portion of them, um, they don't necessarily set a time for their workout or they don't set a, a number of makes. They basically shoot until they feel that their body's starting to get fatigued and break down and they know that their mechanics are starting to falter. So somebody like a Kyle Korver, uh, if he feels that on this particular day he's starting to get fatigued and instead of shooting with perfect mechanics, he's starting to you know um, change to, to get the ball up, he'll just stop the workout because he knows that, yeah, it's, it's good to shoot through fatigue at times, but if I'm going to get you know these last 20 shots in and they're going to be less than perfect form, I'm actually ending my workout on a very bad note. And now a guy like Korver has very high self-awareness. He's very in tune with his body and his mechanics. You know, there's there's not many 10-year-olds or high school players that have that type of awareness. But a guy like that I found is interesting that he'll be, you know, 46 minutes into a workout and he'll say, I'm going to shut it down because I'm just, uh, at this point, I'm going to do more harm than good. Difference between people that make it and people that don't make it, man. And you guys are you guys are dropping uh, some names as far as the, the great <laughs> shooters, not just of of this era in basketball, but of all time. So, um, you know, again, no coincidence that these guys are as great as they are. Uh, but Alan, you know, it's, it's interesting to to me. You know, you you go around and and you teach people, you know, how to utilize the same strategies in business that elite athletes use to perform at, at a world-class level. Um, at what point in, in your career did you realize that you could take the things you learned on the basketball court and, and translate them uh, over to the business world? You know, I think unconsciously I've known that for a long time, that, that what it takes to be successful in basketball are basically the same pillars that it takes to be successful in anything. And, and that's why I'm such a fan of what you guys do and such a fan of, of your show, because you guys talk about those things routinely. You know, I mean, hard work is obviously a big one and, and self-awareness and discipline and, and mastering the fundamentals. And you guys teed off the show talking about the unseen hours. You know, what are you doing when no one's watching? And those are the ingredients to be a successful basketball player, yet you could easily apply that to any area of life. You know, all of your colleagues there uh, that you guys work with, it's the same recipe for them. It's the same recipe, you know, if Mateen, instead of playing basketball, if your son decided to play the piano, it would be the same recipe as it is for basketball. You're just changing the platform. So it's no longer about dribbling and shooting. Now it's about, you know, learning the musical chords and musical notes and being able to play. Um, but it's, it's all the same stuff. And, you know, I know that, that I've been able to apply all of these things to my own life, you know, whether it's running my own business or uh, uh, parenting, it, this stuff all applies. And, and that's, I find great peace in knowing that there really are no secrets out there. There, there is no magic formula that anyone should be chasing. It's, it's mastering the basics, mastering the fundamentals, developing good habits, doing those things consistently, caring about the people that you're around, caring about your team. I mean, if you just do those things, to a fraction of your capability, you'll see performance start to increase. Hey, Alan, when you say that word consistently, that that gets me excited because, see, that's the difference between good and great. I get excited when I hear that. And a lot of people, they can do it once or say three times out of five days. Well, that's not going to make you great. Uh, and, and it's the same thing in sports business. You have to be consistent. That's the key. You can't come in and lead your team members three out of the five days and expect to be great at it. You have to be consistent and you have to do it five days in a row if you want to be great. Absolutely. You nailed it. I mean, I, I think there's a, a trilogy of what it takes 
to be successful in anything. And, and what's interesting, as I've gotten older, uh, I see tremendous parallels between happiness and success. Hmm. I mean, everybody seems to be talking about they want success, uh, but I think you'll you know, that those two things are highly correlated. And, and the trilogy that I always follow is, and the one you guys cover so well, you have to work hard. Clearly, if you don't give your best effort, you're never going to get the best result that you're capable of. And what sometimes is challenging is with younger people that have a lot of talent, sometimes they can get away with not working very hard at the younger levels because they're just dominant over everybody else. Yeah. You know, it, in my two stints at, at Montrose Christian at the Massa, you know, it wasn't rare that I'd meet a 15-year-old who was, you know, 6'8 and could jump out of the gym and he could get away with not practicing very hard, and he was still better than all of the other 15-year-olds. But as soon as he got older and he went to college, then he started to have a problem. And then, you know, if he tried to play after that. So working hard is crucial. And, and I think it's important that we define working hard because we do talk about it all the time. And I define working hard as intentionally leaving your comfort zone with purpose. So this is not about being haphazard. This is about being very strategic. Um, I want to leave my comfort zone physically, mentally, emotionally, and I'm going to do so with purpose. Uh, then the next part of that trilogy is, of course, you have to work smart. You know, it, it's one thing to work and give a lot of effort, but if you're doing all of the wrong things, as we talked about earlier, I mean, you can work as hard as you want on your jump shot. If you're doing it with poor footwork and poor shooting mechanics, you're just going to get good at bad shooting. So we've got to work smart. And then the third piece is the one that, that you said is, is music to your ears. You have to do those two things consistently. And if you can work hard and smart most of the time, I mean, everyone's going to falter at some point, but most of the time, then you're in alignment with working to your potential. And that's what's most important. I hope you were taking notes there, by the way. I, I certainly was on, on, on the trilogy of, of success. We're going yes, uh, we're gonna, to we're gonna spread that one around uh, around the building here, Alan, for sure. But, um, you know, well, well, Justin, here, here's the thing that's so interesting is you can't have two out of three. Right. You have right. to have all three. It, you, it, as Mateen just said, you can work really hard and work really smart. But if you just pick and choose when you do it, you'll never be very good. And you can work really hard and do so every single day but you're not working very smart and you're going to see a plateau happen real quick. And then clearly it doesn't matter how smart you are or how smart you work or how often you do it. If you're not putting in effort, you're not going to be successful. So that's the part of the trilogy that people really need to understand. You have to have all three components. This isn't uh, two out of three is good enough. There is no good enough when it comes to you being the best that you're capable of which is ultimately what everyone should be aiming for. And this is where things can get slippery because it's easy to play the comparison game. It's easy for that 15-year-old to say, I'm the best player in the gym. I don't really need to work that hard because I'm still the best player in the gym. Well, now they're playing the comparison game against someone else instead of saying, I'm not the best player that I'm capable of being, so therefore I better get to work. And that's kind of like, uh, I remember hearing someone saying, well, if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to pick new friends. <laughs> so, yes. So I remember, and I, and I challenge I challenge people all the time. Even, it's funny, you know, with my sports background, I coach my son's AAU team, so I'm around some gyms, and you have sometimes, like you said, it'd be a kid that's bigger, faster, and just stronger than everybody, and I'm saying, I don't like his motor. He's needy. This kid needs to let that. And like you just explained, it's going to catch up with him at some point. So I'm not going to coach to him scoring 25 points against 
under talented people. I'm going to coach to you should have got that rebound. You should have helped on defense. That those are the things I'm going to try to pull out of him. That's going to help him further down the line. Exactly, and that's what a good coach does. Yeah, you're, you're helping get him to a level that he doesn't even know that he's capable of, but that you can see that. And and I think one of the worst things that we can do as coaches and as leaders is accept mediocrity and to enable folks to do less than they're capable of. Uh, I've, I'm a firm believer that holding someone accountable is one of the best gifts that you can give them. Mm-hmm. And because you're basically telling them, I care about you. You know, I care about you and I care about us. And right now you're not performing at the level you're capable of. And because I care about you so much, I'm not okay with that. And, and one thing that, that you know, I, I knew I was going to want to talk to you guys about, and Mateen, I would love your perspective since you played for the man. But, you know, last year in the uh, first round of the NCAAs, uh, when Coach Izzo had that very volatile blow-up on the sideline with, his, with the freshman that wasn't getting back on defense, yeah, and how that, that went viral, and everyone was talking about, you know, how inappropriate it was for him to be yelling like that. And, and the kid didn't even care. The kid knew he had built so much trust and respect and care from Coach Izzo that Coach Izzo was holding him to a very high level of accountability because that's what a coach does. And, uh, you know, I knew enough from behind the scenes to know that Coach Izzo has an incredibly high emotional intelligence and he knows what buttons to push, when to push them, and who to push them with to get an improved performance. And if you remember correctly, after that little tirade, that kid played a lot better after (laughs) that. So... The message got through, and and I'm not saying that that that's for everyone, and I'm not saying that if you work in a corporate environment that it's appropriate to yell and scream like that. I'm just saying that accountability is a gift, and as coaches, we should be giving that gift to the people we care about. Exactly, and you have to know what approach to take with certain players, and you have to have leadership capital with your team members no matter what approach you take. And Coach Izzo, I mean, the kid didn't take it personal. He was coaching him up, and I think, I say it all the time, as a leader, it's our job to get the best out of that individual. Whatever we have to do, if we got to put our arm around them, encourage them, if we got to affirm up with them whatever the case is if you're a leader and you're leading people it's your job to find a way to bring the greatness out of that individual that you're leading yeah you just said that perfectly that's what a leader does that is emotional intelligence to the nth degree is for you as the leader, Mateen, to be able to say, okay, uh, I can be very direct with Justin. Um, I can kind of, you know, get on him and he'll perform at a higher level. Uh, Alan, not so much. I got to kind of put my arm around Alan and, and sugarcoat things and coddle him. But when I do that, he performs at a higher level also. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that's what the best coaches do and the best leaders. This is not just relegated to athletic coaching. This is the best leaders. Uh, and of course, it's harder to do, especially when you have a huge organization like you guys have with 4,000 employees. It's really hard to know every single person and, and the manner at which to coach them. But that's why what you guys do is so prolific is that you train leaders there. So you have so many leaders. It's not just Matt or it's not just Mateen. I mean, you, you guys have so many leaders to make sure that there's that customized, personalized touch with everyone. And uh, Leadership 101 is... It's not about me. It's about you. And and what is the best way for me to coach you to higher performance? And that's that's what the most effective do in any walk of life. And I, I'm really glad you brought that up. Hey, Alan, speaking of performance, you know, um, 
everybody, I guess, to a certain extent is is in the business of sales, whether you are you know doing it directly or or indirectly. You know, we all um, at a certain point have to either sell ourselves, our company, a product, whatever the case may be. Uh, one of the one of the concepts that you actually teach is how to skyrocket your sales performance. So I'm curious, you know, when you're going around and and speaking to to different companies, you know, what are the the big things that you carry over from from these world class athletes um, that that people in sales can implement to help them improve? Well, I noticed that the best players in the world, the, the Kobe's, the LeBron's, the KD's, the Steph's, were always very coachable. Uh, they had a nice humility about them. Now, these guys were killers on the court. I mean, they were so confident in their skills, but they still had enough humility to know that no matter how good they were, they could still get better. And they, they wanted to be open to coaching. Uh, so that humility and openness is what allowed them to develop the skill of listening. And I think listening is one of the most important skill sets for a leader, but is the most important skill set for someone in sales. Uh, I've had some sales mentors teach me that, that telling is not selling. That if your whole idea of selling is to go in and beat someone over the head with, you know, your features and your benefits and why you're better and, and, and it, you're just trying to convince them to buy. And that's very short-lived. Uh, if you're really good, you will ask them insightful questions, and you'll find out if they really are the right fit. And if they are the right fit, and you keep asking them insightful questions, you won't have to convince them to buy. They'll convince themselves. And that's really what sales is all about, is, is making sure that whatever it is that you're selling is actually a good fit for the other person. You're not trying to manipulate them. You're not trying to trick them. You're not thinking, well, I've got to make my sales quota this month, so how can I fool this guy into purchasing? No, you want it to be a great fit because then it'll be sustainable, and then they'll have such a good experience that they'll refer other people. And the only way you know if it's a good fit is if you're asking them questions. And anytime they answer, you ask them another follow-up insightful question. And basically, you're just dropping breadcrumbs. And as I said, if you do that effectively, you don't have to convince them to buy anything. They'll convince themselves. And, you know, uh, an example would be if I had, uh, you know, Mateen says he's in the market. He needs a new chair. He needs a new office chair. Well, I could go in and slap down a brochure and tell them about the three best-selling chairs I have and what colors we have them in and why they're better than, you know, the, the, the local competitor. Or I could go in and say, you know, Mateen, what, why do you need a new chair? Did, did something happen to your old one? What's important in a chair for you? You know, are you looking for something sleek or something more comfortable? You know, and just asking question after question after question. And when we get to the end of that trail, I'll say, well, you know, based on everything you said, I, I believe I've got the perfect chair for you. Here, have a seat in this and let me know if this is what you're looking for. Before he even gets up from the chair, he's going to pull out his credit card and hand it to me because I've done the work of asking to make sure it's a good fit. And then when we leave, we both feel good about the transaction because I served the need that he had and he trusts and believes in me. Wow. I love the way you broke that down. It actually takes me back to when I was being recruited coming out of high school. It's funny. Like Coach Izzo, when he recruited me, he had that he, he, that's that's the approach he took. He was, you know, he told Michigan back then. And Michigan State wasn't the prominent basketball program that it is now. And he just right. sold me on how it would be a perfect fit. It would be a perfect marriage. And we just and I and, and I and I I believed him. There was a lot of other highly uh, touted. I mean, highly coaches. I mean, highly recognized coaches that had been on TV that had been the Final Four that had won plenty of games that didn't have that approach. And it, to me, it. 
it didn't I didn't buy into it. But he had that approach that you just talked about, and it worked out perfect. He ended up stealing me, to be honest, from a lot of bigger name schools. Well, uh, so I had a chance to interview coaches. Uh, we were both working uh, one of the USA Basketball Fantasy Camps uh, several years ago in Vegas, and I got to sit down with him. And you know, he, he's just dropping knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb. But he said something really profound that that really changed my perspective from that point forward and it's something I talk about with every corporate group I work with and he said a player-led team will always outperform a coach-led team in the long run and as we dove deeper he was talking specifically about Mateen because I had asked him you know what, what was it about that championship team that was so different and he said what was different was uh, Mateen you were basically the head coach on the floor and that that there was so much leadership on that team of guys wearing jerseys that it it that's why you guys were so successful. And obviously, a head coach or a CEO, I mean, they have to be good at what they do for the team to be successful. But when you can get a team to police themselves, and, you know, I've heard all of the stories, Mateen, about not just you going to the gym, but you're dragging teammates to the gym to get in workouts and get an extra shot. That's, that's when teams really evolve. And, and I, just was, I thought it was so profound because – you know, I absolutely put Coach Izzo on the Mount Rushmore of current college coaches. You're talking about one of the best to ever do it. He is the face of Michigan State basketball, and he's admitting that he doesn't even want to be the main leader on the team, that he would prefer that it comes from the players, and that if they are player-led, they'll be more successful. And I just, uh, that blew my mind. And from that point forward, I realized how important it is to not only have good leadership at the top, but that leadership needs to, to resonate all the way down and hit every single person on the org chart. Oh, yeah. And, and what happened is in, on teams like that, and, and it happens on the college level, NBA level, you tend to hold each other accountable. And now as a, as a coach, you just sitting back kind of managing the personalities and making sure everything is going right. But that that's what it was all about. We held each other accountable. And um, I encourage some of our leaders here not to be so hands-on. I understand you want it to go right, but you have to delegate. You have to trust others. And what that does is empower them. And it actually makes your job easy, in my opinion. Oh, you nailed it. I love it. You know, we, we talk all the time about unconscious messages and you just hit one really insightfully there. When you delegate something to someone else, you are empowering them because the unconscious message you send them, if I'm going to delegate something to Justin of importance, unconsciously Justin's thinking, Alan, trust me. Yes. He believes in me. He knows that I'm good enough and competent enough to get this done. And that's a glue that's going to strengthen our relationship. Uh, unfortunately, what happens with a lot of leaders, especially in business, is they delegate something but then they micromanage. Yeah. So I give Justin, I give Justin a project, and then I either literally or figuratively stand over his shoulder and breathe down his neck and watch everything he's doing. And unconsciously, now I'm telling him, Justin, I don't trust you. I don't believe in you. And actually, I don't think you're good enough to get this done if I'm not standing here. And now that's going to start to erode our relationship. Uh, it's it's like pulling a, a a string out of a sweater, and you're just starting to unravel the whole thing. And the part that's hard is. When people micromanage, they usually have very good intention. You know, they have they have a very high uh, you know they have high standards of excellence that they want to see this done, and they think that they're being helpful by micromanaging when in fact they're doing the exact opposite. And it's the same thing in sports. You know, this is one one lesson I'm sure you know, having coached young kids, Mateen. You know, you can easily overcoach basketball. 
You know, if a kid's yep. shooting and you stop and tell him 29 things that's wrong with his shot, he's going to get paralyzed with, with so much information. You need to give very short sound bites and very small coaching cues. Yes. Um, even if the kid has 27 things wrong with his shot, just focus on the one or two biggest ones first until he's aware of those and then start to make some changes and then make the other changes over time. But um, coaches that stop practice every two seconds and disrupt the flow to, to teach or to correct, they're, they're not doing their team justice because they're not letting the kids figure things out on their own. And that autonomy is incredibly important. And you know, that's ultimately goes back to delegation. You know, you know, you talked about the crossover, not just between basketball and business, but also with parenting. And when you were just talking, you know, it kind of re- reminded me of a, of a situation where maybe you've got a, a young child who's, who's maybe coloring or working on a Lego and the parent wants to interject. They want to jump in and tell them, no, do it this way. No, you're doing it wrong. Just let them go. Just let them do it. And they're going to figure it out. Instead of you constantly jumping in and telling them what they're doing wrong, let them figure it out by themselves. Absolutely. You nailed it. I mean, think about it for all of us. That's what experience is. Experience is basically mistake times time. You know, that's, that's how we learn. And if you don't even allow people the opportunity to make mistakes, then you've got a problem. And uh, something else I've noticed uh, from, from the great coaches that I've been around, um, let's just say we'll keep using basketball since that's something we're all familiar with. And we're in a scrimmage situation during practice. And Mateen goes down and unfortunately makes a bad pass and turns it over. Uh, I think the novice coach will stop practice, will yell at Mateen, like, why would you make that pass? Are you an idiot? I can't believe. Uh, and, 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 and then say, well, here's where you should have done. All right, now let's move on. Uh, there's not a whole lot of learning going on there. Whereas I think a, a more veteran and astute coach would stop and go, okay, Mateen, you just turned the ball over. Can you explain to me why you made that pass? Yes. What is it that you saw from your vantage point that made you think that was the best pass? And get them to take ownership. You know, give them the benefit of the doubt. Clearly, I don't think Mateen meant to turn the ball over. So at some point during that momentary decision, something in Mateen's basketball IQ made him think that was the best pass to make, and obviously he was incorrect. So let's unpack it and work backwards and reverse engineer it, and let's find out why. So why did you think that was the best pass in the team? Uh, now that you know that it wasn't, what were some other options that you should have considered? And get Mateen to come up with the answer where he says, you know what? I shouldn't have looked to feed the post there. I didn't have a good angle. I should have kicked it to the corner because Justin was wide open for a three. And now we move on, and there's much better learning taking place. There's much more ownership, and it's not this me as the coach always telling you guys what to do. It's you being able to explain it as players. And, and hopefully, you know, your listeners can translate that to many different scenarios in business. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, it's the same thing in business. I have sometimes um, – Team members might try something and it, and it just didn't go right. But I, I like to say right string, wrong yo-yo. I mean, I, I see where you were going with it, but probably it was the wrong decision. But I, I see that. And, I, and it's the same in sports. You know, that kid might make a bad pass. And I say, well, what did you see? Oh, well, you thought that guy was open. All right. I see where you were going, but maybe next time. But I, I, I definitely sometimes you got to let them screw up sometime. You know, as long as it don't burn the building down, you know, we'll bounce back from and they can learn from it in the long run. Yeah, and that's what practice is for. Yes. Practice should be a playground for making mistakes. Now, 
they're not made from lack of effort. Effort. They're not made with poor attitude. They're not made with apathy. But mistakes are, are the, the the drawing board for future success. So uh, I understand if there's five seconds left in a final four game that Coach Izzo doesn't want to see a turnover right there. Right. But in practice, as long as you are trying to push the envelope, you're trying to exceed what you're capable of, and you're trying to make the right play. You're you're just going to learn from it. And I would I would make a very strong argument that the more mistakes Mateen would make in practice, the less mistakes he'll make in a game because he learned from all of those. And and I think that's that's what we want to embrace, even in corporate culture. You know, if we talk about sales, one of the things I think all sales organizations should implement is some type of role playing where, you know, for fifteen minutes a week, uh, Justin and I are gonna partner up and in this case He's the prospect, and I'm the person selling, and we're going to role-play a few different scenarios. Uh, no different than if you're at basketball practice and you're scrimmaging, and they say, all right, white team's got 63, um, green team has 67, there's two minutes on the clock, all right, let's play this out. And, and let's try and do as many game-type scenarios as we can when we're role-playing and tell the prospect, come up with objections, find ways to weasel out of this, find what, and, and let's work on it now so that we're not doing it for the first time when we're in front of an actual client or customer. Now, let me ask you this question because I, sometimes we can see certain players or certain people in, the, in our office or whatever, they just got it. It's the it factor. You know they're going to be successful. So what's what's the mindset that you had or a story you might have for someone that nobody really saw nothing in and a guy that probably had very little talent but ended up getting a scholarship? But, you know, I, I know you've had pros, but give me one of those, those situations where a kid that nobody might not even, even hear of but well, had to go get it, go go get it from the dirt. Well, I've got a perfect one for you. Now, this was just a little bit before your time, Mateen, but Nike started doing some skills academies. This was in 2007 is when they decided to take some of their signature players, uh, which at the time was Kobe and Vince Carter and Paul Pierce and Steve Nash, and they decided to create some summer skills academies that were going to get back to focusing on fundamentals and teaching the game the right way. Mm -hmm. And they knew in order to make fundamentals sexy to high school players that they had to get their best players involved, that a kid was not going to fly across the country to go do a fundamentals camp, but he will fly across the country to learn from Kobe Bryant. And these camps had both high school and college counselors at them. And in that 2007 Kobe Skills Academy, there was one college counselor in particular um, that kind of stuck out because no one really knew who he was. Uh, He had just finished his freshman year in college, but he didn't have the name or stature or resume of the other guys there because the other college counselors there were all going to be future first-round draft picks. And this kid just didn't have that type of resume. But all of us coaches noticed very quickly there was something different about this kid, and it was palpable. I mean, he had a different energy, uh, a different perspective. I mean, he was he was always the first one laced up on the court going through a pre-practice shooting routine. He was always the last one to leave the gym. Uh, anytime he was in line to do a drill, if, if he wasn't sure that his footwork was perfect, he would grab a coach and go off to the side and get them to show it to him. And then the thing that impressed me the most, at the end of the very first workout, um, he and I had never been formally introduced, but I was just standing really close to him. And he looked at me and he said, Coach, will you rebound for me? Because I don't leave the gym until I swish five free throws in a row. And, and you know, Mateen, I know you know this, but some of your listeners may not. 
swishing five free throws in a row is a very high standard. That's hard that to do. That is a sign of perfection. Uh, and that means you can swish four in a row, hit a little bit of the rim on the fifth <laughs> one, it still goes in. You're still five for five, but that wasn't good enough for him. He would start over. Uh, and if memory serves, I don't think it ever took him longer than 12 to 15 minutes to swish five in a row. Wow. And that young man was Stephen Curry. Stephen Curry will go down in history as the greatest shooter that this game has ever seen. I mean, I I love Ray Allen as much as you do, but Steph is on another level. Oh, yeah. Stuff that he's doing. And I always tell folks, the reason he'll go down as the greatest shooter, it's not by accident, and it's not by luck. And it's not even just because his dad played in the NBA. It's because he's willing to hold himself to an unparalleled standard. Uh, And that's... That's the message that I want everyone to know, that the standards that you set today will determine who you're going to be tomorrow. So if if you have great dreams and aspirations, then you need to hold yourself to a very high standard now, and you should surround yourself with people that hold you to that high standard. You should surround yourself with the Tom Izzo's and the Mateen Cleese and the Justin Whites of the world because they care enough to make sure that you're going to swish your five in a row before you leave. And if you can insulate yourself with people like that and you can work hard, smart, and consistent and you do those things during the unseen hours when no one's watching, you're on your way to being the best that you're capable of and that should be good enough for anyone. Man, I'm, I'm just giddy right now. I got a smile on my face because you mentioned me in the same breath as Mateen Cleaves and Tom Izzo. So uh, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll take it. And, and you know what, Alan? You, you're right. It, it ties nicely, I think, back to, to what we talked about to, to tip off the episode. You know, what you do when no one is watching. And I know that Mateen is big on that, whether it's in basketball or in business. You know, what are you doing to improve yourself when there's nobody else in the room, when the lights are off and you're the only one there, whether it's getting shots up, whether it's, you know, sitting at your laptop, what are you doing to improve at those moments? Well, Justin, and I say this with all sincerity, man, you, you were every bit as good at your craft as the other guys that I just mentioned. Now you, you may not have the fame or notoriety that they do, but that's something that's out of your control and, and, and the work, you know, the research that I've done on you and, and what you've had in the past with what you, you've done in television and so forth, like you get that. You understand how important preparation is and, and, and doing your homework. And, you know, the fact that, that we had a, almost an hour chat before you guys even decided that I'd be a good fit for this show shows me the type of due diligence that you do. So, yeah, I absolutely lump you in with those other two guys because you're just as good at your craft as they are at theirs. And it's for the same reasons that they are. I appreciate it. Very, very, very kind of you. Um, even if I, uh, well, maybe, maybe now that I got a little bit of confidence, I can puff my chest up. Maybe <laughs> Mateen and I may have to go down to the basketball court, Alan. We got a, we got a, a full length indoor basketball court here on campus. So uh, now that I'm feeling pretty good, I may have to, may have to take him down there and, uh, and see if I can give him a run in a little game of one on one. you started, Alan. Well, I was just gonna say, if if you do that, Justin, you're gonna learn humility all over. Hey, <laughs> that's a good thing to learn too, Alan Stein. We uh, we very much appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a real treat to get to talk to you. Oh, this was so much fun for me as well. I really appreciate you both, and we'll always be rooting for you guys. Keep up your great work. Thank you, Alan. We appreciate it. My man. And thank you for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode of Power Forward, subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and leave us a review. And look for another new episode coming your way two weeks from now featuring more inspirational stories of success. I'm Justin White. We'll see you next time on Power Forward.